All right, good morning. I promised that uh, we would begin on time, and we're nearly 23 seconds early, so uh, we're off to the right start. Just a couple of uh, quick points. We'll have presentations. The presenters will be up here or someplace around here. For the discussion, we have two microphones here, and so uh, if you once we're done with the presentation, you want to pose a question, just come on down here. If there's anyone who has limited mobility, we want to be to make sure everybody can be included in the conversation. So I recommend sitting nearby these microphones if that's an issue. Or if there are serious problems, we'll make sure someone can bring a microphone to you. But I'd rather not make that the standard. So people should line up. But again, if you have any limited mobility problems, that's not a problem. We can uh, take care of that. Well, our first presenter to get us off uh, to the proper start, uh, Professor Stephen Landsberg. Uh, Stephen is a mathematician by training, but he's an economist by profession and passion. Uh, he's a, a great uh, teacher and explainer of economics and a couple of quick things. In addition to his bio, which you can go and check, we posted it online. He has a, a new edition of his wonderful book, The Armchair Economist, fully updated for the 21st century with uh, 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 data and uh, updates and uh, contemporary examples. He blogs daily at thebigquestions.com, so you can check his blog. He'll be blogging well here as well. And he's nearly finished with another book, part of his wide-ranging interest on uh, the theory of relativity. Stephen Landsberg. Thank you. Microphone working? Yes? Good. Uh, I want to talk to you about economic growth. And the story of economic growth begins about 100,000 years ago, when modern humans first emerged. And then uh, we've got the timeline here. For the next 99,800 years or so, nothing happened. <laughs> uh, nothing happened. There were, oh, you know, there were some wars, there was some political intrigue, there was the invention of agriculture, there was the Renaissance, but none of that mattered. None of that mattered in the sense that none of it had any appreciable effect on the quality of life for any substantial number of people. From the dawn of history up until about 200 years ago, just 10 generations, nearly everybody who ever lived lived right around the subsistence level, the modern equivalent of maybe $400, $600 a year. Oh, there were times and places where it was a little better than that, even some extremely fortunate times and places where people earned maybe the equivalent of $1,000 a year uh, per day, uh, $1,000 per year in, in today's terms. And of course, there were always tiny nobilities, kings and queens and dukes and princes who lived much, much better. But they were numerically insignificant. So that if you had been born any time prior to the Industrial Revolution, prior to about 200 years ago, the odds are astronomical that you would have lived on the modern equivalent of 400, 600, or if you were extremely lucky, $1,000 a year, just like your parents, just like your grandparents, just like your children, and just like your grandchildren. And then a couple hundred years ago, something happened. Uh, incomes, at least in the West, started to rise. 
By the year 1800, incomes were rising at about three quarters of a percent per year in the West. Uh, a couple decades later, that was happening around the world. And then it got better. Just 20 years later, incomes were rising at one and a half percent a year. This was unprecedented, this kind of sustained growth. It had never happened before in the history of the world. Since 1960, in this country, uh, per capita growth, that's per capita growth corrected for inflation, that's, that's income per person corrected for inflation, has grown at about 2.3% a year since 1960 on average. To translate those percentages into something concrete, let's think about what that means for a typical middle class family. Suppose that you are a middle class person with a modest income of let's say $50,000 a year then at that 2.3% growth rate that we have sustained for the last 60 years or so, if we continue at that growth rate, then in 25 years, your children will be earning the inflation-adjusted equivalent of $89,000 a year. And if we continue that growth rate, their children, 25 years after that, will be earning the inflation-adjusted equivalent of $158,000 a year from 50,000 to 89,000 to 158,000 in two generations. That's the power of economic growth. And if you extrapolate that out a little bit further, for say another 400 years at 2.3% growth per year, then your descendants will be earning approximately $1 million per day, <laughs> unless of course, they rise above mediocrity and live a little better. And I want to stress that these are not some future inflation-ravaged dollars we're talking about. This is after corrections for inflation. That's the equivalent of a million of today's dollars. Now, I don't know whether we're ever going to reach that point 400 years from now. But I do know that it's a conservative extrapolation from a centuries-old trend. It's conservative. Oops. It's conservative because it assumes that we're going to continue that 2.3% growth rate for the next 400 years. Whereas, in fact, what has happened since growth first started 200 years ago is that the growth rate itself has continually risen. If you find this an implausible number, you might pause and reflect for a moment on how implausible your lifestyle would have sounded if I had tried to explain it to somebody 400 years ago. You might also meditate on the history of skepticism. This guy is Julius Frontinus, who in 100 AD observed that inventions have long since reached their limit. There's no hope for future development. <laughs> this is the history of per capita income in the United States. The United States is sort of a, a medium growth country. Uh, our, our growth compared to other countries has been steadier, and it started earlier than most, which has been very good for us. But on average, uh, our, uh, we're, we're a pretty average country in terms of the level of growth. This is all corrected for inflation. This is all $2,005. And you can see that, that incredible march of prosperity over the years. Uh, we have just had, of course, a pretty rocky couple of years. This only goes up to 2010, but you can see the dip there at the beginning of the crash. That's the kind of thing that happens from time to time. It happened most spectacularly in the 1930s here, where we had a Great Depression. Here's what happened in the Great Depression. Incomes fell back to where they had been about 25 years before. 
and people found it intolerable. They had to live the way their parents lived, and they found it intolerable. They had to live at a level which their great-grandparents would have thought unimaginable luxury, and they found it intolerable. That's how much we have internalized the idea that things are supposed to keep getting better. But that's a new idea. Nobody before the Industrial Revolution thought that. Today, we, uh, we expect our cars and our entertainment systems and our computers to keep dazzling us with something new every year. We expect that, but that underlying expectation is new. In the 18th century, here's something you never saw in the 18th century. A politician asking, are you better off than you were four years ago? Nobody asked that because in the 18th century, nobody expected to be better off than they were four years ago. It's not just incomes. Let's look at what's happened to our leisure time. A hundred years ago, the average work week in this country was 65 hours. Today, it's 33. A hundred years ago, 6% of manufacturing workers took vacations. Today, it's 100, uh, virtually 100%. In 1910, 26% of 65-year-old men were retired. And that's at a time when most men didn't make it to 65. Of those who made it to 65, they were really old. Three quarters of them were still working. Today, 90% of 65-year-old men are retired. Child labor was common in 1910. Uh, boys entered the workforce routinely in their early teens. Today in this country, it's practically unheard of. So we are working less per week, fewer hours per week now. We are working fewer hours per year, uh, few, fewer weeks per year, fewer years per lifetime. The average housekeeper in 1910 spent 12 hours a day on laundry, cooking, uh, sweeping, uh, um, cleaning. Today, it's about one and a half hours. Here is the typical housewife's laundry day in the year 1910. First, she pours water to the stove, heats it over coals, pours it into the big tubs there, washes the clothes in the tubs, wrings out each individual item separately, either by hand or with a mechanical wringer, and then moves on to the oppressive task of ironing using the heavy flat irons that are continuously heated over the hot stove. The entire process in the year 1900 takes eight and a half hours. She walks over a mile in the process. We know this because the United States government used to hire researchers to follow housewives around as they did their laundry and count every step. And we know from those uh, old research studies that doing the laundry required eight and a half hours and a mile of walking. By 1940, our heroine has a washing machine, and now her laundry day is down to two and a half hours, and she walks 665 feet. Today, nobody spends two and a half hours on their laundry. You throw the laundry in, and if you have one of those really new fancy machines, it emails you to let you know when it's done. <laughs> it's not just laundry, it's not just cooking and cleaning and sewing. In the year 1900, most houses in this country did not have central heat, did not have plumbing. So other routine household tasks included lugging seven tons of coal and 9,000 gallons of water around the house every year. Just since 1965, just since 1965, the average American has gained six hours a week of leisure. That's the amount of time that we spend 
in the office or commuting is down by six hours a week for the average American. That's the equivalent of getting seven extra vacation weeks per year. That's just over the last uh, um, 40, 50 years or so. So we're getting richer, we're working less, and on top of that, the quality of the goods we buy is improving. If you doubt that, go pick up a 40-year-old Sears catalog, leaf through it, and ask yourself if there's anything in there you want to buy. Here's a couple pages from a 40-year-old Sears catalog. You can get this AM radio with separate tone control. It weighs two pounds, nine ounces. That's exactly twice as much as an iPad. Um, one transistor comes with the uh, battery. Uh, you could get this black and white camera, which takes up to eight pictures. Uh, and then you replace the film pack, the, which probably costs about as much as the camera does, so that you can take another eight. You buy the separate flash bulbs, and you, you screw the flash bulb into the camera every time you want to take a picture. And of course, uh, they come in packs of 12. And you, uh, when you run out of those, you have to replace those. Uh, the only thing is that these, these pictures are a little misleading. They're misleading because you're seeing the 40-year-old prices on there. And we really ought to correct those for inflation. Those are what the prices are corrected for inflation. $128 for that transistor radio, $210 for that eight-picture camera. Uh, and I guarantee you it takes a picture far inferior to what you get off your iPhone. Or it's not, you know, it's not just electronics. Take a product like healthcare. Here's a shocking number. If you look at the quality of healthcare in the poorest parts of Africa today, and if you control for the effects of AIDS, and there, there's an argument for doing this and there's an argument for not doing it, but if you say that, well, AIDS is a special one-time thing that is not part of the general trend of healthcare, so I'm gonna take the effects of that out then the healthcare outcomes that we are seeing in the poorest parts of Africa today, measured by infant mortality, measured by life expectancy, measured by pretty much anything you want to measure, are almost exactly the same as what we were seeing in the United States of America in 1975. 1975 in the United States, you were getting the same quality of healthcare that the poorest Africans are getting today. And now I want to ask you, which would you rather pay would you rather pay 1975 prices for that 1975 healthcare, or would you rather pay today's prices for today's healthcare? I venture to guess that there is not an informed person in the world who would choose to go back to 1975, and that's gotta tell you that for all the problems with our system and all the hype about rising costs, healthcare today is a better bargain than it has ever been. The moral of all that is that increases in measured income, even the phenomenal increases in measured income that we've seen for the last 200 years, grossly understate the story of how rapidly the world is getting better. Henry VIII had a much higher measured income than nearly anyone in this room, than certainly nearly anyone in the, in, and probably than anyone in this room. He ruled half of England, but I bet you he would have traded half his wealth for modern plumbing a lifetime supply of antibiotics, and access to the internet. Now, along with all of that wealth that we have generated, has come another brand new phenomenon, wealth inequality. Per capita income in the United States is 70 times what it is in the poorest parts of Africa. 
The world has never seen inequality on that level before. That's brand new. You know where it came from? You know why that phenomenon is new? Because wealth is new. The reason we have all this inequality for the first time is that we have wealth for the first time. And if you think inequality is a problem, it's worth reflecting that it is at least a tremendously fabulous problem to have. It's the problem of how to divide up all this amazing wealth that nobody would have ever predicted we'd be able to generate in the first place. If you want to think about issues of inequality, and I'm not going to go into great depth with that today, but I do want to mention a couple things that you want to keep in mind when you think about inequality. First of all, nobody in the world today is poorer than they would have been before the Industrial Revolution. I know that because if you were poorer than you would have been before the Industrial Revolution, you would have starved to death by now. Another thing to keep in mind is that economic growth is new. It's only a couple hundred years old. We've been around for 100,000 years. We've had 200 years of growth. This process is just getting started. It's just getting started, and it has started some places later than others. And with some, in some places, it's gone by fits and starts more than it has in others. But we have not begun to see the power of what economic growth can do on a worldwide, uh, on a worldwide basis. Uh, and we should remember, too, that in the long run, a rising tide lifts all boats. Here, after all, is what economic growth has done for the poorest Americans. Let's look at households below the poverty level in America. 98% have refrigerators. 67% have washers and dryers. 96% have color TVs. 75% of those with over 300 channels. I grew up with three black and white channels. 68% have air conditioning. Many of the others live in climates where air conditioning is superfluous. 63% have internet access at home. This is a households below the poverty level. When you survey people at that level and ask them, do you have enough food? 93% answer yes. Do you have any smoke or odors that bother you in your neighborhood? 93% say no. Any unmet medical needs? 86% say no. Any roof or ceiling leaks, 90% say no. It is more difficult to lead the life of a poor American than it is to lead the life of most people in this room. But it is the difference between that life and the life that everybody took for granted 200 years ago is almost unspeakably uh, great. Beyond that, you remember those leisure gains that I mentioned a little earlier. I said that the average American has gained the equivalent of seven vacation weeks per year just in the last 40 years. Well, that's been distributed very unequally, in fact. The poorest Americans have gained twice as much, the equivalent of 14 weeks of leisure. Now, nobody, I think, would want to claim that these great increases in leisure fully compensate for the differences in income. But it's also true that big increases in leisure are not nothing. We don't live by bread alone. Our happiness comes not just from our incomes, it also comes from our free time and the time that we have to spend with our friends, the time we have to spend with our hobbies, the time we have to spend with our favorite TV shows. So let's, uh, I, I think it's worth keeping in mind that over the last 40 years, if you're worried about inequality, you might want to keep in mind 
that the big relative winners in the income derby have been the small relative winners in the leisure derby and vice versa. Those people who have gained the least income have gained the most leisure. Um, one might also point out that the quality of that leisure has been improving. 50 years ago, the rich man and the poor man spent their leisure time in very different ways. Nowadays, the rich man and the poor man are pretty much surfing the same internet and watching those same 500 cable channels. So there's been a great equalization there as well. Uh, when we turn to uh, Asia and Africa, uh, they are, uh, the poor there are considerably worse off than the poor in the United States. But we are seeing in many places the same patterns that we saw in the West set back by 150 years or so. Take child labor, for example. In Asia and many parts of Africa, incomes are about the same as they were in the United States in the year 1840. And people send their kids to school, uh, to, to work, people send their kids to work at just about the same rate that Americans did in the year 1840. Moreover, we know historically the patterns in the West, in the United States, and in England of how people pulled their kids out of the workforce as their incomes rose above certain threshold levels. We're seeing those same patterns in Africa and Asia. People are pulling their kids out of the workforce as they go over those same threshold income levels. Now, you might have heard that child labor in the third world is caused by big multinational corporations throwing their influence around and convincing people to send their kids to work against their own interests. If that's your theory, then you've got to explain why Americans and Englishmen were sending their kids to work in 1840 at pretty much exactly the same rate at a time when there were no multinational corporations around to influence them. Poverty is a terrible thing. Poverty, it means facing terrible choices, like should I send my kid to work or should I send my kid to bed hungry? Poor people in various cultures at various times have faced those questions and have pretty much all settled them in the same ways. At certain levels of income you send them to work, at higher levels of income you take them out. It is, I think, the height of arrogance for those of us who have gotten past that stage to look at other people who are now facing that and saying, you ought to do it very differently than we did. Uh, but a lot of Americans take that view. Uh, this is Moina, a 10-year-old uh, Bangladeshi girl, or she was 10 years old when this picture was taken in 1992. Uh, uh, she lost her job as a result of protectionist legislation that was uh, uh, sponsored by Senator Tom Harkin. Uh, that closed down, ended up closing down factories in Bangladesh that were not up to the standards that American lawmakers thought they ought to be up to. About 50,000 children lost their jobs as a result of that. Moina was interviewed by an anti-poverty activist in Bangladesh at that time. This was her take on the situation. They loathe us, don't they? We are poor and not well-educated, so they simply despise us. That is why they shut the factories down. Um, there is one difference, though, between us in 1840 and the third world today. The difference is that when we were poor, there was nobody who was rich. There was nobody we could turn to for help. 
the poorest people today are turning to the relatively rich and asking for help. And that raises the question of what ought we do about that? That's a, a, a hard question with a lot of aspects. And I'm certainly not going to settle it for you today. I do want to say a few things that you might want to keep in mind when you think about that kind of question. First of all, it is remarkable to me the extent to which arguments for income redistribution, either across the world or within a country, are literary arguments. They, and I, that's not a criticism. Uh, but they tend to be arguments based on literary analogies, metaphors. I, I like arguments from metaphor. Uh, the arguments for redistributing income are, are very heavily metaphor-laden. They say things like, we ought to redistribute income because society is like a family. Or we ought to redistribute income because society is like an insurance scheme. Well, like I said, I like metaphors. I also like taking them seriously. So let's, let's look at those metaphors and see where they really lead us. Let's start with the family metaphor. Um, Here's how this metaphor goes. Society is like a family, and we should redistribute income within that family because families do not allow one member to struggle while another prospers. That's, that's almost a direct quote from, from uh, the governor in New York. Families do not allow one member to struggle while another prospers. The problem with that metaphor is that families do allow one member to struggle while another prospers. They do it all the time. We know that from data. We know it from data on bequests. In families where there are great income disparities among the children, more often than not, the parents divide the bequest equally. A bequest is your final opportunity to redistribute income among the people you love the best. And most people look at that opportunity and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to redistribute among those people. So if your goal is to make society more like a family, to reflect the values that we observe in families, well, then your metaphor tells you that we should have less income redistribution, not more. A better metaphor, in my opinion, is the insurance metaphor. Society is like a big insurance contract. And the story that people want to tell here is that, look, before we were born, any one of us could have been born into any circumstances at all. We could have been born smart. We could have been born stupid. We could have been born ambitious or lazy. We could have been born with great opportunities or with no opportunities. And if we had had the opportunity prior to being born, we would have entered into an insurance contract that said those of us who get lucky will take care of those who don't get lucky. And the argument is made that we didn't actually enter into that insurance contract because somehow before you're born, even the insurance salesman can't figure out how to reach you. But We all know we would have signed that contract if we could have, and therefore, we are morally bound by it. That, that is my reading of, of, of the argument that is often made. We all know we would have signed that contract if we could have, and therefore, we're morally bound by it. That kind of argument was the basis uh, for John Rawls's uh, uh, monumental book on the theory of justice. John Rawls was a, 
very influential philosopher at Harvard University. Uh, he wrote this uh, extremely influential book uh, called The Theory of Justice. I do not understand large parts of it. On those occasions when, uh, uh, in the past, uh, Rawls is, is uh, dead now, but uh, back when he was alive, whenever I quoted it in print, I would always get a handwritten note from uh, Rawls reminding me that I did not understand it. Uh, and uh, uh, he was right about that. But my best reading is that this insurance metaphor, and I think uh, most people's reading, is that this insurance metaphor is, is a big part of what underlies his whole story. Well, Rawls was a philosopher. I'm an economist. And since I'm an economist, not a, not a philosopher, I would like to think about this metaphor a little more deeply. I would like to take that metaphor seriously, give it its due, and see where it leads us. The problem with an insurance contract, with enforcing an insurance contract that nobody ever signed, is that you got to figure out what the terms of that contract were. Exactly how much insurance would we have bought before we were born? Now, we can't look at documents to find the answer to that, but we can make estimates, which is the kind of thing that Rawls and his followers seem never to do. The first thing you do is you ask, how much risk were we actually facing back there when God was handing out the brains? You can estimate the risk by looking at the range of abilities that actual living people have. Okay? We know how smart the smartest people are. We know how dumb the dumbest people are. We know how many opportunities the, 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 the luckiest have. We know how many opportunities the least fortunate have. We know the variance of outcomes. And that's a measure of how much risk people were facing before they were born, in terms of what circumstances they were going to be born into. Once you've measured that, you can ask, well, when people face commensurate levels of risk in other areas, when they're looking at the possibility of a fire or a burglary or a heart attack, when they face commensurate levels of risk, risk with similar levels of variance, how much insurance do they actually buy? And from that, you can back out how much people would have paid to avoid that risk at birth time. So, you can uh, do a quick, dirty, back-of-the-envelope calculation of all that and ask yourself, what would the terms of that insurance contract have been? In particular, how many people would we have agreed, what fraction of the population would we have agreed to support? What fraction of the population would we have agreed to say, you know, you're not earning very much anyway, you might as well stay home and we'll take care of you? Do that on the back of the envelope. My former colleague, Jim Kahn, now at Yeshiva University, did that on the back of his envelope, and then I did it on the back of mine, and we got the same answer, so I have a little faith in it. The percentage of the population that should be permanently unemployed and on welfare, if we buy the insurance metaphor, 23%. Bigger than any social insurance program that anybody has ever remotely contemplated in this country. 23% of the population should be on welfare permanently and never asked to work. That's pretty amazing. On the other hand, I said this was a quick, dirty, back-of-the-envelope calculation, and one thing it left out was it left out the fact that in a world like that, there would be tremendous 
disincentive effects. What we would, the rule in this world would be if you're among the dumbest 23%, you don't have to work. The effect of that, which our calculation did not account for, is that everybody's going to play dumb, right? <laughs> to try to be among that 23%. So if you redo that calculation, making the sort of worst case possible assumptions about how those disincentive effects are going to play out, then you get a different answer. 0.3% of the population should be unemployed and on welfare a much smaller social welfare program than anybody has for a very long time ever contemplated in this country. So there are your bounds. If you ignore the disincentive effects completely, 23%. If you assume that they're as bad as they could possibly be, 0.3%. Where in there uh, lies the truth? I do not know the answer to that. I ran out of envelopes. Uh, I ran out of backs of envelopes. I don't want to suggest that either of these numbers should be taken seriously. But I do want to suggest this. If anybody is arguing for redistribution based on an insurance metaphor, they damn well better be doing this kind of calculation, and they better be able to show you their numbers and how they got their numbers and what assumptions they made. This is the kind of thing that goes into translating a metaphor like that into an actual policy proposal. That's all the way you would want to go if you took the insurance metaphor seriously in the first place. But there are problems with that. One of the big problems with the insurance metaphor, at least as it is actually used, is that the social insurance program that we have in this country does not actually insure you against any, against any of the really bad things that could happen to you at birth. Things like being born in Cuba, or Albania, or Mali, as opposed to Canada, or Luxembourg, or the United Arab Emirates. Remember, this is an old slide. This is what we learned about what poverty is like in America today. Our insurance metaphor tells us that we're supposed to be insuring people against the really bad things that could happen to you when you're born. Well, being born into that, that's not so bad by world standards. So if you took the insurance metaphor seriously, and I think it is not entirely unreasonable to do that, but if you took it seriously, your conclusion would have to be that every single penny that we make in welfare payments should be going not to East Los Angeles, but to East Timor. Another disconcerting thing about this uh, insurance metaphor, a little disconcerting, I'll pull up another old slide. I remind you that by a conservative extrapolation, our ancestors are going to be making a million dollars per day. It is striking to me, then, that we have all these conservationists running around arguing that people like you and I, living the lives we lead, ought to be scaling back our lifestyles, living more conservatively, in order to improve the quality of life for these future gazillionaires. Um, that is a sentiment. The sentiment of these people is that there should be a tremendous amount of redistribution from the relatively poor, namely us, 
to the relatively rich, namely our fabulously uh, uh, wealthy descendants. That's what they want us to do. Okay? And often these are the same people who are always arguing that we need to redistribute more from the rich to the poor. Okay? Now, I have not pointed to a flaw in either argument separately, but it does seem to me that these arguments are so much in conflict that when you hear the same person making both of them, you got to wonder whether he's really thought things through. Those are all uh, uh, philosophical observations about the issue of income redistribution. But I want to put the philosophy aside and talk about the main practical issue with income redistribution. Here's the main practical issue. That trick never works. It never works. Nowhere in history, nowhere in the world, nowhere in the world, at no time in history has any program of income redistribution, as far as I'm aware, lifted substantial numbers of people out of poverty. Occasionally, you can somewhat alleviate the ravages of poverty for small numbers of people for short amounts of time. But I am not aware of any case where substantial numbers of people have ever been lifted out of poverty through income redistribution. The only force we know of that has ever done that is economic growth. So if you want to solve the problem of poverty, what you got to do is ask yourself, where's all this growth coming from, and what can we do to nourish it? Here's a start. Uh, these numbers are, are uh, at least 10 years old. Uh, if, I, if I graphed them today, the, the, the overall picture would look the same, although some individual countries may have moved around. Uh, this is income per worker. That's uh, capital per worker. Capital per worker means the value of the machinery that, that uh, workers have to, to work with. The sewing machines that the seamstresses are working on, the uh, assembly lines that the auto workers are working on, the value of the capital, the machinery, the, the, the physical plant that the workers have to work with. And what you see there is a very, very clear picture. Economic theory predicts this. The numbers uh, uh, confirm it. The more capital the workers have to work with, the more they earn. You look at that and you say, oh, OK, well, that solves the problem. All we need is more capital. Well, that's a little trickier than it sounds. Where does capital come from? In order to produce capital, we have to be not producing some consumer goods. The guy who is building the assembly plant okay, is not simultaneously building a, uh, uh, an, an iPod for you. The people who are constructing the capital and the resources that go into constructing the capital have got to be diverted from consumption. To say that, so we only get this stuff if people consume less. To say that people are consuming less is to say that they're saving more. So to get more capital, we got to get people to save more. Unfortunately, just saving more is not enough, and here's why. The more we save, the more capital we build. The more capital we have, the more effort, the more resources we have to put into maintaining it. Capital needs maintenance. The more capital we build, the more we put into maintaining it, and so a society that just relies on saving and investment for its growth is going to find that things peter out. You build more capital, you move up this ladder a little bit, but then you're putting so much effort into maintaining that extra capital that it's very hard to move up any further. Okay? That's why you can't just climb the ladder. 
you need something else to push you up that ladder. You need something else to push you up that ladder. And it's crystal clear what that one something else is. The engine of growth is innovation. I recently had a historian tell me that the reason the Industrial Revolution happened when it did can be traced back to a single cultural phenomenon that the idea spread that no matter what you were doing all week, it was always worth taking a couple hours every now and then to ask yourself how to do it better. The idea that you should put a little effort into figuring out how to improve the way you did things was, at least according to this historian, the key driving fact behind the Industrial Revolution. Innovation is the only thing we know that can drive growth. Yes, you need saving, but saving alone, theory tells you and evidence tells you, cannot do the trick. We need innovation. What does innovation mean? When I say innovation, people always think of these wonderful electronic devices. They look at the iPhone they're carrying in their pocket. There's innovation for you. But it means more than that. It also means the farmer who invents a new method of crop rotation or the business person who invents a system like, say, just-in-time inventory management, an idea, incidentally, that has done more to alleviate the, uh, the difficulties of poverty in this country than any idea I know of that has ever come from a United States congressman. Um, you can fly to Tokyo partly because somebody figured out how to build an airplane but also partly because somebody else figured out how to insure it. We need both kinds of innovation. You have a computer on your desk, partly because somebody said, hey, I wonder if we can make computers, uh, I wonder if we can make uh, computer chips out of silicon. But also partly because somebody else said, hey, I wonder if we can fund startup companies with junk bonds. Take away either of those, and the computer revolution goes away. And in fact, if you want to know which of those is more important, one good rough and ready way to, to, to answer that is to follow where the money went. Go back to the early days of the uh, computer revolution in the early 1980s. Microsoft's annual profits were about 600 million a year. That was also the annual income of Michael Milken, the junk bond king. So by that measure, uh, the contributions there were about equally important. Innovation drives growth. That raises the question of what drives innovation. Two things that we know of. One is education. The other is economic freedom. Um, let me say a couple words about education. Uh, here, the, 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 the great expert that I always go to for information on this is Eric Hanischek at Stanford University. Uh, who has done all the research on the relationship between education and economic growth. He estimates that if you could improve Mexican schools to U.S. quality, you would add 2% a year to their growth rate. That's phenomenal. Okay? That 2%, think about what 2.3% has done for the United States. This is talking about adding 2% to what they've already got. Improve U.S. schools to Danish quality, you'd add 3 quarters of a percent to the growth rate. That's gigantic. Uh, I want to take a minute to uh, say something about how you know that, how we figure that out. You can, of course, look at different countries and notice that the ones with good education have higher growth rates. But that doesn't prove anything because we all know that correlation does not prove causation. So you've got to do something a little trickier. 
once again, I'm pulling up numbers that are for illustration only. These numbers are 20 years old, and, and they will have changed by now. But here's what these numbers mean. A Haitian, I'll, I'll, first I'll say it wrong, and then I'll say it right so you can see what the difference is. For a Haitian, an extra year of education adds 2.02% to your wages. For a Mexican, an extra year of education adds 2.03% to your wages. For an Ecuadorian, an extra year of education adds 2.77% to your wages. That's a measure of the quality of education in those various countries, how much it adds to your wages, how much it's giving you in terms of practical skills. Now, that's still the wrong way to do it, because the Haitian is working in Haiti, the Ecuadorian is working in Ecuador, the Japanese is working in Japan. So many things are different in those labor markets. We'd like to control for that. So the right way to do this, and what these numbers really mean, these are all measures of people who have immigrated to the United States and are working in US labor markets. So they're all working in the same labor market, which controls for all those other differences. A Jamaican working in the US labor market with an extra year of Jamaican education earns an extra 3.5% in wages. If you're working in the US labor market and you have an extra year of Japanese education, you have an extra 8.22% in wages. That's a pretty good measure of how much better the Japanese education is than the Ecuadorian education. And measuring quality of education in that way and then correlating it with economic growth is how Hanischek gets a lot of these numbers. Uh, how do we do better? How do we improve our education? Uh, to me, the answer, the obvious uh, first answer is get the government out of it. Uh, but short of being able to do that, uh, if you look at evidence on what has actually worked in various experiments in school districts around the country, uh, some things like reducing class size are remarkably ineffective. Other things like linking teacher pay to test scores are remarkably effective. And the really big one is firing bad teachers. Um, uh, Hanischek estimates that if you got rid of the bottom 5 to 10% of teachers, and I want to make clear what that means, that doesn't mean that every year you cull the bottom 5 to 10%. It means that once and once only you take out the bottom 5 to 10%, replace them with average teachers, and just do that once. Then within 10 years, you will have added 3 quarters of a percent to the United States growth rate. Again, that is gigantic. That's gigantic. Um, but coming back to my earlier slide on what drives innovation, I said education and economic freedom. We talked a little about education. Now let's talk about economic freedom. What does economic freedom mean? It means small government, property rights, sound money, free trade, limited regulation, freedom to fail. Freedom to fail means being able to start a business that other people think are crazy and knowing that you're not going to be bailed out at the end if it does fail. Because if people are offering to bail you out if it does fail, then they're going to tell you how to run your business. Um, if you don't have the freedom to fail, you don't have the freedom to succeed. Uh, if, if everybody who fails gets bailed out, then the people who succeed are paying those, uh, those bills. There becomes uh, no difference, or you dwarf the difference, between the failures and the successes. You need the freedom to do something that other people think is crazy and to, and to fail with it if necessary. Low marginal tax rates is another aspect of small government, and in particular, low capital taxes. 
Let me say a few words about that, because this is a subject I've got a real bee in my bonnet about. All tax, of course, we all understand that some taxes are necessary to run a, to, to run a polity. We also all understand that all taxes have disincentive effects, and that's bad. And we also, I hope, understand that some taxes have worse disincentive effects than others. A tax on wages discourages work. That's bad. A tax on capital income also discourages work, because part of the reason people work is to accumulate savings that they can invest. But that tax on capital income, in addition to discouraging work, also discourages savings. That's a double whammy. A tax on wages discourages work. A tax on capital income, by which I mean interest, dividends, corporate income, to some extent capital gains, um, uh, estate taxes. This discourages both work and saving, which is doubly bad. Uh, that insight uh, pervades the public finance literature the last 25 years. It's often called the Chamley-Judd result uh, after the two economists, one at Stanford and one at Harvard, who first explicated it in the 1980s. And one thing that I find the general public is remarkably unaware of these days is that there is something like a consensus among economists that capital tax rates in the long run ought to be zero. That capital taxes do so much more harm than wage taxes that you always improve the world, even for the poorest, when you can replace a capital tax with a wage tax. Of course, you would like all taxes to be low, but if you've got a choice between evils, the capital taxes are almost always the worst. Now, there is a great deal of disagreement among economists about what the transition should look like. How quickly should we go to that 0% capital tax rate? Should it be immediate? Should we transition to it slowly? There's also another big issue, and that's this. The reason you want to set that capital tax rate to zero is that so that people will invest more. But they won't invest more unless they believe you're going to keep it at zero. There are a substantial number of economists who say that you will never get people to believe that you're going to keep it at zero, so you might as well not try. There are a substantial number of economists who say that, and it's not an unreasonable argument. They say, no matter what you commit yourself to, people are going to know that 10 years down the line you might change your mind, and because of that, they're going to uh, have that disincentive effect anyway, so there's no point in lowering those taxes. Those people have an argument. Uh, other economists uh, are not convinced by that argument and say that, that uh, we would get very far uh, by lowering those taxes to zero and figuring out how to commit ourselves to it. But where the consensus lies, where something very close to a consensus, but where we pretty much all agree, is that if we could get to that 0% rate and commit ourselves to it, if there were a way to commit ourselves to it, that would be a good thing. The world would be better, the rich would be richer, and the poor would be richer. In, the, in, in not just the long term, but the medium term, if we could eliminate those capital taxes and convince people that we mean it. So those are the aspects of economic freedom that I claim drive innovation and growth. How do I know that? Well, for starters, here's a graph of economic freedom. Uh, the Fraser Institute in Canada rates countries on economic freedom 
on a scale from zero to 10, what do they mean by economic freedom? They mean these things. This, that's, this was not a random list I pulled up. Uh, this was the list of criteria that the Fraser Institute uses. This is their measure of economic freedom. This is uh, per capita income in various countries. And you can see that there's a general upward trend there, that, that as economic freedom goes up, so does per capita income. Uh, that chart, of course, proves, once again, causation uh, and correlation are two different things. So that's still only the beginning of an investigation. You now have to start looking at the data more carefully, controlling for all sorts of confounding variables, and you end up discovering that economic freedom is really, really important. In fact, more so than it appears even in that graph. Uh, the ideal way to determine something like that is with a controlled experiment. Okay, that's always the gold standard in science. We have exactly two controlled experiments on this. One is called Korea and one is called Germany. You split the country in half and one goes one way and the other goes the other way and you see what happens to their economic growth. And in both cases, the results were extremely definitive. The problem with those experiments is that n equals two. We only have two observations. An experiment with two observations is never as convincing as an experiment with more. Two is what we got. Um, Daron Asimoglu, uh, an economist at MIT and Harvard, uh, had a very clever idea for how to find other sort of controlled experiments. He said, let's look at the countries that were colonies of England, for example. The English set up very different political and economic regimes in different countries. Let's see whether the ones that had more economic freedom prospered more. Well, that's, still, that's not really a controlled experiment because you could, somebody could always come along and argue, well, maybe the British chose the prosperous places to give the freedom to. But Asimo Glu's idea was this. He said, that's not actually what happened. If you look historically, what they did was they looked around at where are the places that have a lot of bad diseases, like malaria and yellow fever. These diseases did not affect the natives because the natives were immune, but they affected the colonists. And the British said, the places that have malaria and yellow fever, we're not gonna settle there. So we really don't care how bad things are there. Let's give them the sort of tyrannical regimes and the, and the, and, and, and the, and the non-free regimes. The places that are free of malaria and yellow fever, those are the places we might wanna settle someday. So uh, let's make things there as free and democratic as the sort of place where we might want to live. That's kind of like a controlled experiment because it's kind of random which places are subject to malaria and which places are subject to yellow fever. That's a random assignment. That's not the British going in and saying who's prosperous and who's not. That's the British for an essentially random reason making some places freer than others. If you look at that, and if you're gonna ask me about specific countries, I don't have the country by country data at hand. I should have put it up here. But if you look overall, what he finds is that in that pseudo-controlled experiment, you find considerable evidence that freedom actually causes prosperity. Freedom causes prosperity. Economic freedom causes prosperity. What about other kinds of freedom? Other kinds of freedom don't seem to matter very much. If you look at political freedoms, and these are all things that I think 
most of us would agree are good, free and fair elections, the right to organize, the existence of opposition parties, no dominant military, no dominant religion, open transparent government, rights of minorities, uh, none of that correlates very much with prosperity. Civil liberties, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of association, absence of terror, gender equality, none of that correlates very much with prosperity. Uh, again, that doesn't mean they're bad things. I think they're very good things. Uh, but they're not the things that cause prosperity. Freedom House is an organization that rates countries on political freedom. There's political freedom, and in this case, uh, it's, it's not like the other graph. The other graph, 10 was high. On this graph, 1 is high. Um, so 1 is the, is the freest countries. And you can see that it is true that there is some correlation there. The freest countries are, on average, a bit richer than the less free countries. But it doesn't continue uh, as you go down. You know, these sixes are, are richer than the fives and the fours. And if you look deeper into that data, there's no serious uh, correlation there. What matters for prosperity is the economic freedom, not the religious freedom, not the uh, 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 political freedom, not the civil liberties. So I'll summarize again. The causes of growth are education and economic freedom. I'll point out, too, that these interact. Education causes people who are educated save more. People who are educated innovate more. The data show that if you improve education at the higher levels, you get more innovations. If you improve education at the lower levels, innovations tend to get adopted more quickly. So education at the higher and lower levels both improve the rate of innovation, though in different ways. Freedom leads to more innovation, obviously, because people have uh, the rights to their discoveries. It leads to more saving because people will save more when they believe their savings are not going to be confiscated. And savings and innovation are the, uh, are, the, are the big inputs to economic growth. So I will stop there. I went a little longer than I'd planned to. And uh, I'll take your questions.